0: Tonight, we're uh, back in Acts. Uh, Luke was with us last week and uh, shared with us uh, from Isaiah and answered the question Does God really care for us? It was really powerful. Uh, if you weren't here, uh, it'd be a great thing to listen to online this week. Um, but we're back in Acts uh, chapter 5. We're going to uh, finish this chapter. Uh, last time uh, that we were in Acts, we looked at the first 11 verses. Uh, And we looked at the internal threat to the church. The internal threat to the church was Ananias and Sapphira. They were a part of the church. Uh, They had said, hey, we're going to sell this piece of land. We're going to give it all back to the church. But instead, uh, they put some in their pockets, and they gave the rest to the church. Uh, Now, what was really in play wasn't greed. Uh, What was in play was hypocrisy. They didn't do what they said they were going to do. They wanted to appear more spiritual uh, than they actually were. And God smited them on the spot. It was a really, he- it's a really heavy text, it was a heavy sermon among us for us to really say, am I taking my sin too lightly? And tonight we're going to move from uh, looking at an internal threat back to looking at an external threat. An external threat uh, are the powers uh, that be, the powers that, want, that don't like what's happening with the church. Uh, that's what we're going to look at uh, this evening. Uh, let me pray and we'll get started. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, Lord, I pray uh, that you would give us great boldness uh, because we see um, that joy is at stake. Lord, this isn't just what you call us to, but this is what you incentivize us toward with joy. I do this uh, for your glory, we ask. Amen. Uh, there's a group of us. We meet here uh, every Wednesday and Friday morning, have been for the last several weeks. We've got a few weeks to go. Uh, and we've been uh, looking at different books and hearing from different people in the community uh, who are working on, with those who are on the margins of our society. Uh, it's been really enriching. Uh, the book that we're reading now is a, a book called Let Justice Roll Down. Uh, it's an autobiography by a man named John M. Perkins. Uh, John M. Perkins, he's still living. He's 89 years old. Uh, and he grew up in Mississippi. Uh, his family were sharecroppers. And if you don't know what sharecropping is, I didn't either, to be honest with you. And what I've learned is that sharecropping was really uh, just a a little bit looser form of slavery that was allowed uh, up until the Civil Rights era. And sharecropping was when uh, usually uh, non-whites had a piece of land that they farmed in exchange to be able to live there. Uh, They were given very unfair wages, uh, treated very unfairly, and this is the kind of place that John Perkins grew up in in southern Mississippi. New Hebron, that's where he grew up. And his childhood was awful. I mean, it was for all blacks in Mississippi, but really for him. Uh, His mother died of starvation when he was seven months old. Uh, His brother, uh, when he was a child, was beat to death by a police officer in his own sight. He died in his arms. They took him to the hospital, and he died in his arms. It was an awful upbringing. So his family, they were afraid that John was going to suffer the same kind of fate. So they, when he turned 17, he went off to California. He went off to California. He, it, it was a way different environment than Mississippi. So he was able to work and work for not just uh, a living wage, but he was really able to make some good money. He did that for 10 years. When he was 27, uh, he was converted. He said he'd kind of heard about Jesus, but it says all emotion, and it wasn't anything else than that for him. But then he heard the news, the the, 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 the doctrines of grace and it changed him. And immediately he went off into ministry. Right there in his neighborhood. He began to start these child evangelism clubs and lead children to Christ. Because really that's how he came to Christ. His son was going to one of these child evangelism things. And his son, who was real little, six or seven at the time, invited his dad. And his dad became a Christian at this child evangelism thing. And so he's doing this work and he's having a great time. Really seeing God use him there in California. And then he goes home. He goes home just for a visit. When he goes home for a visit, God calls him to stay. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being John Perkins, a black guy, with that kind of history that I told you about, and God calls him to stay in Mississippi in the kind of brutality that he had experienced as a child? But that's what God did. And he got there, and he started doing the same thing as in California. He started these child evangelism clubs. He started a church. Things really started to take off. He was in the middle of nowhere, Mississippi. People began to intern, college began to intern with him from all over the country. And then Martin Luther King, kind of the height of his influence, that was going on and so was John Perkins' ministry. And John Perkins began to see that he had to do something, uh, not just about the souls of people, but he had to address the racism that existed in his community. And when he did, he became very, very sad, very sad. And here's what he says. He says, I was sad at seeing those that I knew as brothers in Christ insist on a Sunday religion that didn't sharpen their sense of justice during those years of turmoil. It wasn't a question of what team to join. In terms of social justice, evangelicals just didn't have a team on the field. I was also sad to watch ardent civil rights activists who could see the social inequities but who left God out of the picture and thereby ignored the basic spiritual needs that existed. Still, I decided if something was right, I would do it as a command from God and not be scared out because some non-Christians also thought it was right. End quote. So he continues to fight for the souls in his community, but he's doing this work of justice for the blacks in his community. And this is what got him in trouble. He was later arrested with no cause. Think about it. He's a sharecropper. His brother was killed by the police, and now he's taking a stand against the injustice of the systems that seek to oppress blacks. How could he do that? Wasn't he scared? Didn't he know that he was putting his life on the line? Didn't he remember that he had a wife and five young children at home, and he was putting them in danger too? How could he stand up to this kind of inequity? Now, this just isn't a matter of a, a, there's a gospel issues and there's social justice issues. That's not what's going on here. He was standing up on gospel grounds, and he was persecuted for it. And that's what we see in our passage tonight. It's a lightning rod issue, this race thing. It still is today, but especially in the 60s in southern Mississippi. But the gospel's always been a lightning rod issue. See, people back in those days, and still today, race is, is, is something that you, you want to fight for this social inequity. You really love the, not that you really want to get after it or it really repulses you or you just tolerate it and hope it goes away. And that's what the gospel does with people too. People either love it, they hate it, or they tolerate it. And that's what we see in our text today. Let's read it together. Verse 12. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So you see it. People loved it. People needed the gospel, and they knew they needed it. That's verses 12 to 16. Now we see people who didn't like it so much. Look at verses 17 and following. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to be. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them in, but not by force. For they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. All right, so we saw people who loved, who, 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 who were blessed by the uh, gospel ministry. We see people who were angered by the gospel ministry. Now of 34. I'm following, we see people who are tolerate the gospel ministry. All right, but a Pharisee. This is one of the people in the group. But a Pharisee in the council, named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, "Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do to these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed." And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them, charged them not to speak of the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The word of the Lord. So there you have it. You see how it breaks down 12 to to 16, those who are blessed by gospel ministry. 17 through 33, those who are angered by gospel ministry. And verses uh, 34 to 40, those who tolerate the gospel ministry. So let's look at those who are blessed by it first. Do you see the power there in those first five verses? That the rumor had gotten around that Peter's, uh, the power emitted from him because of the Holy Spirit as he preached the gospel was so powerful that if his shadow even fell on you, that you would be healed. So, of course, their number grew more and more and more. And notice who who, who was healed. Look at verse 16. It was those who were sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. So you were either sick of soul, unclean spirits, or you were sick in the body. So Peter was healing those who had spiritual sickness and people who had physical sickness. So you have this number growing growing exponentially. But then in verse 13 you see a statement that seems to contradict what verse 14 is saying. Do you see the first few words there in verse 13? None of the rest dared join them. Well, of course nobody was going to join them. Ananias and Sapphira got killed just a couple days before. But if they were going to join this number, that all of a sudden they were going to have a really high standard for the way their life was going to be. There was going to be no more faking going on in their life, no more hypocrisy, no more pretending. So none of the rest dared join them. So how do you square this? Multitudes joined them, but none dared, multitudes joined them, and none dared join them. Well, I think it's that everybody who did join them was totally committed. They knew that this wasn't a decision that you take lightly. But they were blessed by it. So it asks the question for us: well, What does it take to get blessed by the gospel? What does it take to be enriched by the gospel? Who are the ones who were blessed here? It was the sick. Those were the ones who joined their number. See, the gospel is only for those who know they don't have it together. This is so true in the life of Jesus and now it's true in the life of the early church that it's the needy, it's the marginalized, it's the poor, it's those who know they need forgiveness, it's the downcast. They're the ones who get blessed. And the church back then and even now might as well just be called the League of Losers. At least losers as the world sees losers. And isn't this good news for you tonight? sure is good news for me. I walked in here and you walked in here and we're in need of a great big scoop of hope. You've ruined your life. Someone else has ruined your life. And you're wondering if God really cares. If that's you, you know that you are a perfect candidate for the grace of Jesus. These were the people who were blessed in our passage. The sick. Now maybe others of you. I mean, sure, you'd say you're a sinner. But you really can't be very specific about your sin. You know you've got problems. You know you're not perfect. This whole idea of being sick, this kind of sick, just doesn't quite hit home. But let me remind you of something. Remember, Jesus' most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 to 7. The very first thing out of Jesus' mouth, the most important thing that he says, because it's first, is, blessed are the poor in spirit. So what he's saying is that humility is the number one quality in the life of a Christian. That means you never outgrow your need for grace, and you know it. You know that you, it's not like you were sick, and now you're well just because you got saved. Sure, you can become a Christian, and your standing with God changes forever. But you're painfully aware of your sin. You're painfully aware of your need for Jesus. See, humility is not just what gets you in the door of the kingdom. Humility is what it takes to flourish inside of it. And that's who gets blessed by the gospel, the are the needy. The, those are the people who love it. But the gospel also make you angry. And it makes you angry because it goes full bore at your pride. That's what we see in verses 17 through 33. See, look at verse 17. In verse 17, we see that the religious leaders were jealous of the apostles. You see that? These Sadducees, these religious leaders, uh, they, they were all about their influence. They were all about their identity being built on the power that they had accumulated and now you have this rising popularity of these upstart followers of Jesus, and they pose a threat to their identity, to their power. So they begin this second wave of persecution, and this second wave of persecution has escalated over the first. The first we saw in chapter 4. In chapter 4, more or less, this same group of people just slapped Peter and John in the hand and said, quit preaching. Then they let them go. Well, Peter and John didn't listen to them. Peter and John went out there and started preaching some more, so they get more angry. So they Bring them in, and they throw them in jail. You saw, we saw that, 18 and following. Well, they are not and they thought if they got them in jail. man well, we're going to shut them up. Who are they going to be able to preach to in jail? Just those other prisoners that we don't care about? But they don't know that they have a God behind them who works wonders. They don't know the supernatural, the miraculous is at stake here. So God breaks open the doors of their prison and they get out. And where's the first place they go? They don't go in hiding. They go to the most public place in Jerusalem. They go to their Triangle Square, and they start preaching the gospel there. And so the captain comes, and he, 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 he gets them, he pulls them back into the same courtroom for these people, and they're angry, really angry. So it went from slap on the wrist to being thrown in jail. So what's it going to be now? How's it going to be escalated now? This really got me thinking. How are they going to respond? How are they going to respond? Because this Sanhedrin, this council, and they're going to be burning with anger. So, are they going to respond with anger too? Is the temperature just going to keep rising as this cycle of anger keeps going from one angry group of people to the other? Would they resist their arrest? Would they cower in the face of opposition? Would they be diplomatic and maybe negotiate kind of a middle of the road solution? No, that's not what happens. They don't get angry. They do retaliate. They do resist. But they know they've got to obey God over men. See, Peter and John, all throughout here, you you can see that their emotional temperature doesn't really rise. They stay calm in the face of the opposition of those whose anger is overwhelming. Because they know that to be a good citizen, even a Christian citizen, is to submit to human authorities. Same is true for us. Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, they call us to submit to the authorities that God has put in place. But if the authorities that are put in place misuse their God-given power to command what God forbids or forbid what God commands, then it's Peter's duty and it's ours to obey God rather than the human authority. And so they obey God and they preach right there. They tell them again, quit preaching. And they say, uh, no, we're not going to quit preaching. Uh, they, they did say that, and then they went on to preach to the people who told them to quit preaching. And the people they're preaching to, this Sanhedrin, this religious council, this is the same group of people that put Jesus to death. This is the same group of people who already has slapped them on the wrist. This is the same group of people who's already put them in jail, and they, and Peter and John, preach the gospel to them. Unbelievable. These are the people who've rejected Jesus. They've rejected his true identity. But Peter and John offered this shocker to them, that forgiveness of sins and repentance is available to even them. Even even those who are really angered by it are being extended this invitation to salvation. Because what was true then and is true now is that God saves people who kill his son. But in order to receive salvation, these people are going to have to swallow their pride. They're going to have to raise their hand. They're going to say, I'm guilty. I did it. It was me. See, people hate the gospel because it attacks their pride. In fact, if the gospel has never offended you, then I dare say you may have not really squared your shoulders to it. Because the gospel is like a sledgehammer on the human ego. The more you think you have going for you, the more money, the more talented, the more educated, the better behaved, the more well-connected that you are, the harder you are to the gospel. See, pride is what keeps us from being open to it. We don't want to admit that we need the deity in order to survive, so we get hostile, we buck up, and our hearts get hard. If that's you, I've got really, really, really good news for you tonight. God is great at breaking hard hearts. He's relentless. Think about Peter. He beat on Peter until he broke. He took one swift swing of the gospel hanger, hammer on Paul, and he made him blind, and it broke Paul. He took Moses out into the desert until he broke. He crushed David through the prophet Nathan. It's painful to get broken, but your stubborn heart is no match for the grace of God. So, is he chipping away at you tonight? Let me give you some advice. Give in, let him break you. Be a mess. Quit being angry and let grace be your portion today. So, we've seen how the gospel blesses people. We've seen how the gospel makes people angry. And now we see the gospel tolerated. See, verse 34, you get this new character enters the narrative. See his name? Gamaliel. Gamaliel was part of this council. He was probably the most respected member on this council, the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee. And he stands up and he tells the story about two other leaders who acquired the same kind of cult following. One's name's Thutis, the other's Judas the Galilean. They had the same thing in common. They rose up with some new ideas. People followed behind them. They didn't last very long. The people dispersed and the leaders died. And Gamaliel says, hey, how do we know that what's going on here with Peter, John, and the rest of the apostles isn't the exact same thing that happened with Thutis and Judas the Galilean? See, back around first, in first century Judaism, this happened literally thousands of times where a religious revolutionary would rise up and people would follow him. And Gamaliel says, maybe this is just the same thing happening all over again. So let's just see how this plays out. Let's give them some rope and see if they hang themselves with it. But notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't consider the claims of Peter about Jesus. Because in the end, that's not what the Sanhedrin or Gamaliel are most concerned about. What they're most concerned about is their power, their reputation, their leadership. So although Gamaliel isn't hostile, like the rest of his ilk, and even though he lowers the temperature in the room by advocating for a common-sense approach, he still doesn't take serious the person of Jesus. He tolerates the gospel, but his toleration is really just a polite rejection of it. And I think that's where most of us are tonight. Sure, we're, we, we we say, yeah, we've been blessed by the gospel, but you're also saying, I'm really not all that sick. You might say, yeah, I, I, I've got a little bit of pride running around, so I guess I'm a little angry when it comes to the gospel. But if that's you, in this kind of middle ground, this gray area, it's possible that you've been lulled to sleep, and you're just tolerating this gospel. So have you identified yourself in this passage? Do you see yourself as sick and one who's been healed? Do you see yourself as the one whose pride keeps you from receiving the gospel? Or are you like Gamaliel who tolerates the gospel, but really you're just politely rejecting it? See, all these are about really how you relate to God. But I want to take it one step further. I want to ask another question. What would it look like for you to be really free? Really free. Like John Perkins kind of free. Where you're free to live outside the courtroom where you're controlled by what others think about you. Where you live outside the courtroom where you don't think about yourself anymore. What would that look like? Look at verses 41 and 42. Look at verse 41. Verse 41 says, Then they left the presence of the council, a council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So, what's it going to take? It's going to take you wanting this kind of joy. They rejoiced after they got whipped 39 times, that the skin on their back was separated, and they were singing. The whole time, they knew that joy was coming down the pipe for them. Either the joy of suffering, verse 41, or the joy of seeing the fruit of their ministry. They were seeing people healed, physically and spiritually. And see, that's what's coming down the pipe for us. When we get free, we're all of a sudden free to be an an emissary, to be an ambassador on the behalf of Jesus Christ, a witness to be a part of proclaiming the kingdom of God has now come. And, joy, and when you say, I'm on board with that, joy's coming down the pipe for you. Now you might say, well, how, how, how can I be joyful in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution? Well, think about Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Do you see his motivation? His motivation for enduring the cross... For scorning its shame was joy. It was the joy that was set before him. The joy of having you. The joy of glorifying his Father. And friends, that's the joy that's coming down the pipe for you. See, friends, all of us are going to have a persecution. It's probably not going to be a crucifixion like Jesus. It's probably not going to be a public trial like it was for the apostles. But make no mistake, you will be persecuted. It might be because you don't get the promotion that you thought you were going to get. It might be that you're quietly marginalized. And likely when you're encountered with the opportunity to stand up for Jesus, it's going to be in private. The stakes will still be high. But when it happens, take advantage of it. Because joy is coming. See, so Peter learned really quickly, just like we read in Genesis chapter 12, that he wasn't going to get a 100% response rate. And you're not either. If you say, hey, I'm, I'm going to be a part of this spreading the kingdom of God kind of thing in the world, you're not going to get a 100% response rate. Uh, LifeWay, recently, this uh, Christian organization, they did a study, and they found that 5% of people will become hostile when presented with the gospel they also found that the more educated the more wealthy the more likely they are to be hostile this very same research said that 35 percent of the people polled would go to church if someone invited them and that someone was someone that they knew and trusted so here you have it you're seven times more likely for someone to say yes for coming to church than you are they're getting hostile so the question is why don't i do it more it's because we only remember the 5%. And when that happens, we see that we're still bound. We see that we really aren't free. And it sure does seem like the enemy's winning. But he's not. If you look back at all the Roman emperors during the early church, first 350 years of the church, they all hated Christians. They all persecuted them. They all killed thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians. And one of the early church fathers wrote this. He said, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed of the church is the blood of Christians. See, Christians, persecution will refine you, but it's not going to destroy you. In fact, it'll just lead you to prayer. It'll just lead you to praise. It'll lead you to joy. It'll lead you to trust in the sovereignty of God over your life. Oh, what a blessing. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Um for our short-sightedness, forgive us, uh, forgive us really for our low capacity for joy, Lord, that we would rather uh, bring joy to ourselves and trust that you'll do it as you move in the hearts of people, and that you'll give us joy in the midst of suffering. Oh, Lord, may we see the joy that's set before us, even tonight. In Christ's name, amen.